Uh, I know that some in our audience know the finer points of hockey. The Chris Johnston Show. We are your friends. The biggest stories bringing you inside the game. What did you hear? The Chris Johnston Show. What is going on? Here's Chris with your host, Julian McKenzie. Part of the game. CJ, we have ourselves a jam-packed Monday edition of the Chris Johnston Show. We're going to get to the Oilers. We're going to get to the Leafs. We're going to get to questions for Ask CJ. But we have to start off with the biggest story revolving around the hockey world. Uh, two incidents involving racism took place over the last few days in the AHL. Uh, Christoph Rabic of the San Jose Barracuda suspended for a racial gesture towards uh, Boko Imama, who plays for the Tucson Roadrunners of the AHL. Uh, this is not the first time he's been subjected to something like this. Uh, Brandon Manning, I believe during the 2019-2020 season, uh, delivered a racial gesture towards uh, Boko Imama. And then not long after that, just during the weekend, uh, video circulates of an incident between Jacob Panetta and Jordan Subban. monkey a monkey like gesture from Jacob Panetta towards Jordan Subban in the video that we saw which PK Subban Jordan's brother uh later retweeted and talked about on his social media platforms that goes viral and uh Panetta eventually thrown out of the game for the racial gesture uh, the officials do actually say uh for a racist gesture number 15 Jacob Panetta 5 minutes for fighting a game misconduct for continuation, a game misconduct for a racial gesture, and a two-minute unsportsmanlike conduct. And eventually leads to a suspension, suspended indefinitely, and Panetta is eventually released from his ECHL team. Different uh, players around the hockey world, Tom Wilson, Jason Zucker, have tweeted in support of Jordan Subban. P.K. Subban spoke about it to the media. I'd rather just people focus on how can we change it and make it better so that the next kid that looks like P.K. Subban or Jordan Subban doesn't have to go through this. Uh, Jacob Panetta delivered a uh, statement over Twitter. We're going to try to cover all that as much as we can. But CJ, just to get us started here, what were your initial reactions to what happened? Well, I mean, it's disgusting, obviously. I mean, we're not, um, I don't think there's any debate about, it's more just like, how are these things happening? Um, you know, the Panetta Subban one is, is interesting, right? Because I, on one hand, you know, I watch Jacob Panetta's video two 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 and a half minutes where he apologizes, you know, he lays out a plausible case, you know, where he says that he was making a bodybuilder like gesture after, you know, saying something to Jordan Subban along the lines of you only get tough when the referees are, are there to protect you essentially. Um, you know, it's plausible, but I think you're, you hit on the key point here, the referee in the game, you know, highlights the fact that it, it was a racial gesture. He felt it was and Jordan Subban, you know, who was on the receiving end felt it was. And so, you know, that alone makes it troubling, of course. And, you know, I can't help but sort of zoom out just a little bit more and think we're two weeks after the Hockey Diversity Alliance has teamed up with Budweiser and launched that campaign. You know, we see Willie O'Ree's number 22 go to the Rafters at TD Garden in Boston last week, you know, the first black player in the NHL. And, you know, it's hard not to look at it all and just think this is still a sign of how much 
distance and ground the sport has to cover. You know, I think the NHL as a as a body has to do more, even though the two incidents we're, we're highlighting here happen in lower leagues in the AHL and the ECHL. Um, you know, there's still there's still a gap there between the HDA and the NHL. And so, you know, I'm sorry that anyone had to be involved in this, but you, you hope that if you want to take a hopeful um, takeaway from it, Julian, is just to reminder, like, it's not like this is a past tense problem. Um, and I'd like to see, you know, harsher consequences, honestly. I mean, we're, we saw that a little bit. The Brandon Manning incident you mentioned from January 2020 was a racial slur. He got a five-game suspension. You know, it's a 30-game suspension uh, for the the gesture that Ravik made to, to Boko Imama. So, you, I mean, you are seeing, I think, a change there in, in the approach. But, you know, I think there has to be more deterrence put in place, too. Um, but also, give your head a shake. Like, I don't, I don't understand how this is still a thing myself. Um, I realize that's a bit of a naive point of view, but that's kind of where my brain goes. Like, how is this even something that's happening? But, you know, you see it in soccer. I know it's a huge issue in, in European soccer, you know, a lot of different tensions there. Um, and so, you know, it's not like hockey's alone here, but but hockey certainly has to step up. And, you know, it's nice to see some of those those other players too come out and, and speak up because I think that that's, that, that helps the cause as well. Two things. So, Yes, it come. These incidents happen after the number twenty-two being retired for Willie O'Ree. Uh, not to mention Martin Luther King Day was on Monday. A man who sought through the civil rights movement to unite people regardless of race. You know, you see people sharing the MLK quotes all the time about how you know he had a dream and all that, right? Like we, we've seen all that. It, so to just to me as as a black person who follows the game and is a fan of the game it does feel like a slap in the face, right? Like it feels very insulting and very tone deaf that we get not one, but two racist incidents happening after days that are supposed to be, you know, signifiers of, of social progress within hockey and just in life in general. Um, the, the I also want to discuss the Panetta uh, statement as well, because I have a lot of questions about, that statement uh it's he uh so pk suban i believe when he tweeted the video said that jacob deleted his social media uh pretty much in light of what had happened on the ice with him in jordan and then on sunday he did like jordan tagged him in the original post like he tagged his twitter handle and by the time i had clicked on it the account was already deactivated saturday night right but on sunday we see this video pop up and his social media comes back if just I'm going to go through. So in our like group chat that CJ and I have, but we were just talking about it just, you know, the day before we were going to talk about it here on the show. And CJ asked me for my thoughts about the video. And I gave him a list of questions. If you don't mind, CJ, I'm going to go through the list of questions that I have about the video. Um, It was about like five questions. So why did this video come after Jacob was suspended indefinitely, and I understand it is pending a hearing with the, the uh, as per the league CBA. But why did this come after the suspension and after he was released? What was the ECHL's process in determining that Jacob was in fact worthy of being suspended? And what was Jacksonville's process for releasing him? Why did Jacob delete his social media and then just resurface back with this statement? Uh, I also want to know for sure from Jordan. If Jacob did, in fact, try to make clear 
that the gesture that he did was not racist. And five, is it true that Panetta has done this to other players? This 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 tough man gesture as a bonus point too. this is just my view on it. Tom Wilson stepped up in support of his friend Jordan Subban. When people, at least from what I've seen on social media, make the point that the gesture that Panetta made is a tough guy gesture. The exhibit A that we see is Tom Wilson in the penalty box in that game against New York Rangers. Tom Wilson should know more than anybody else about what the tough guy gesture should look like. And even him, whether it's just because Jordan Subban's his friend, he wants to support his friend. He knows more than anybody about that gesture. And he sided with Jordan Subban on this. Well, I mean, I'm of the view we should all side with Jordan Subban eventually because if he felt that's what happened, I mean, let's let's reverse engineer this. There's no way, there's no planet on Earth. Like, there's no way he would ever suggest that something like that happened if it didn't if he didn't believe it happened. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't even think that that's he didn't. He, Jordan Subban didn't need this, right? Jordan Subban played a hockey game on Saturday night. He didn't need to like bring all this you know attention or spotlight towards him. This all this conversation have his brother PK being asked about it after his NHL games or before his games. Like this is, you know, obviously he feels that this is what this was. Now, maybe those two will have a talk. Maybe they can, maybe there's, and, and if I'm willing to, of course, adjust my opinion of Jordan Subban does. I mean, he was, he was the one who the gesture was made at. He was, knows what was said on the ice. He knows what led up to that in the game. Like he's, he's got a better sense of what happened here than anyone. I mean, I know there's video kind of scratchy ECHL video, but, you know, basically when he says that that's what happened, I take him at his word because I just don't, I don't believe he would want, you know, this isn't, this isn't like a small accusation. So, um, you know, and the fact that the referee, I mean, that the, the audio is pretty telling that, that the referee who was also on the ice, presumably again, privy to what was being said and saw it from pretty close range, felt it was a racial gesture. I mean, it's good enough for me. Um Man, I, it's it's hard to put your mind around this. Honestly, like I mean, and I'm saying that as a white man, so you know I, I can understand. You know, I'm sure for you seeing this and being part of the game, you know, and it wouldn't be the first time. But it's just it, it's uh, it's hard to imagine that this is happening on the ice in pro hockey game. Like it's it's crazy to me that it's 2022 and that's where it is. And you know, I think the conversation does. It's important though, right? You, you hope that. First of all, you hope that the sanctions are heavy because I do think that's a deterrent. And I think having bringing light to this and talking about it, even if it's a little uncomfortable or you know it's hard to process, I think is important to making sure that that's it's just clear. Like I, again, I almost see, it feels insane saying this. It's just what, what are you doing? Why? I, I don't understand. I, I really I don't get it. How that that's that's happened and continues to happen. Yeah, uh, it, it's something that upset me a lot, to be honest. I th- I gave myself a lot of Sunday to think about what had happened and to feel a way about it. I tried. At first, I thought I was just going to feel kind of borderline apathetic, but I realized how angry I was getting about it. And I thought of other all my other black friends were into hockey and other persons of color were affected by it, affected by it. And there were people who were affected by it. And it's just I say apathetic because it's something that keeps happening and happening and happening. And I can't help but bring up a timeline again and all the events that happened just before uh, the incidents. And it's just kind of like, well, if people 
went through if if people saw the jersey retirement of Willie O'Ree, a guy who was the first black player to play in hockey, the Jackie Robinson of this sport, and note and and not realize the what his his efforts mean to the advancement of our game when it comes to integrating different races. When when people if, if those people saw the Hockey Diversity Alliance ad campaign and you don't feel anything by it, like at this point, like what do you do? Also, uh, Akil Thomas, I should bring this up, um, I believe is still in the Kings organization, uh, tweeted about the video with the uh, the incident involving Jordan Subban and Jacob Panetta and tried to bring attention to the crowd in that game as well. And I think some of the some of the sounds from the crowd could be a little inconclusive, but so a lot of them sound like they're egging on what's going on. Uh, it, it, it's it's a lot of people about this who don't look good as far as I'm concerned. And it's just, it's upsetting. I, mean, I used it's, it, Akil Thomas yeah. tweet at the top of my inside the NHL column. And mm-hmm. what, struck, the, what struck me is here you have 22-year-old guy at the start of his pro hockey career, former Canadian World Junior Hero, won a gold medal for Canada. And he tweets, is this the game I love? Like rhetorically, of course. Um I mean, that's sad, right? It's sad. He's, he's, you know, I, I don't know Akil and I've never asked him. I don't know what, what he was or wasn't exposed to, but, you know, as a young man of color with promising pro hockey career, I mean, he's tweeting, is this the game I love? I mean, it, that, that's, it just hit me for some reason when he put it that way and, and he linked to the video that you're mentioning. I mean, um, you know, it just seems that, that pretty, I, I can't speak for every last person of color in the NHL, but it feels like everyone has stories. You know, based on, you know, I know those involved in the HDA. I, I don't know if you read any of the coverage, Julian, when they when they launched that Budweiser campaign, because there's yeah, a number of stories. Like, like a lot of, it's just interesting to hear the different perspectives of the players. You know, Wayne Simmons talking about knowing people to this day that play minor hockey in Toronto that have had, like, issues this season, um, racial-related incidents. You know, this is, you know, it, I guess I, I really admire the fight that's there from those, those guys with the HDA. Cause I realize that it's not a clear path and you know, they haven't been, the NHL hasn't put their arms around them. I mean, I, I think if you want to appeal to even a different part, like to me, this is important for the NHL as a business decision, frankly. And like, I, we don't even need to go there in general, but I mean, if I think that when we talk about growing the game and, and putting the sport in the best possible position, I mean, that should make this alone a priority. It's also just the right thing to do. And usually you should do the right thing. I, I'm glad you went there because I wanted to talk about uh, the people and entities who have come out in support of Jordan Subban and Bokwe Mama in light of what has happened. And I understand that uh, because it is a developing thing, by the time that this podcast goes out, there may be more people added to this. Uh, but just from what I've seen, we've seen the Canadians tweet about it. In fact, I, I think they might have been the first team, the first NHL team to say something. And I know a lot. I know the reputation that's around the Canadians now in light of what's gone on over the summer. So for them to do that, that's very interesting to see. And also people have brought up the fact that the way they handled P.K. Subban. But still, I think it's very noteworthy that they were quick to this. The Devils obviously also tweeting about this as well. Uh, Tom Wilson, we mentioned tweeting about this. Jason Zucker tweeting about this. Uh, AJ Greer, who I believe also plays for the Devils, uh, tweeting about it as well. And again, there may be more names, but I wonder for me, you know, obviously the NBA, different composition, different league, different composition of players in it. 
But if something like this happened in the NBA, we would have heard from LeBron by now. In the NHL, why do we have to wonder when Sidney Crosby or Connor McDavid or some of the other bigger names and faces are going to say something? Like, I just think it's just natural if the NHL wants to act like it genuinely cares about this and we can that's a whole other issue in itself about whether Pete players in the league actually genuinely cares about this on its own. But you're right from business decision. Like it would look good if one of those bigger stars tweets out in support of, of Jordan and Boko. Like it just, it, it, it just kind of works out that it should work out that way. But I think a lot of people will be disappointed at the fact that for something like this, some of the biggest players in the world at the very least seem silent, but also at the same time, I'm saying this from the vantage point of, you know, we're recording on a Monday. It's entirely possible that by the end of today, more and more people could speak up about it, but at least on the onset, like I didn't really see enough people step up and make it seem as if this is something that they genuinely care about. Right. And it's funny, the way a former team executive once put it to me, he said, we want to bet athletes to play our sport. Like selfishly, if you love hockey and you want hockey to still be a great sport for many years, doesn't matter where the person's from. Obviously, it doesn't matter their, their racial background, again, sexual preference. I mean, you just want the best athletes to want to hold a hockey stick and put on skates and play the game because that's that's what will ensure that the game thrives and continues. And, and if you get to a point where you have huge segments of any population, again, that could be just all of a sudden if the country of Finland stops producing hockey players, like that's bad for hockey in general. Uh, and, and clearly here, it, there's so many barriers uh, for people of color to enter the game, we've just seen so few numbers. You want to knock those down because you want to have the best players. You want that's 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 how this thing continues. Like lots of businesses rise and fall, sports will rise and fall over time. And so I think it, it, it again, in addition to being the right thing to do, and I almost you almost feel silly having to go beyond that statement. I just feel like there there needs to be more intention put there. And I, you know, I do think I think the NHL does recognize it. It just feels like they're lagging a little behind. Um, but, you know, I was at the board of governors meeting in December and, and there was a lengthy presentation there given to the league owners, you know, Kim Davis, an executive at the league, I know is, you know, and she's, 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 she's pushing hard, but you know, it's, it's going to take more than one person, even as driven and talented as she is to, to drag the league forward. But, you know, I, I hope, that's why I'm, I'm trying to find a hopeful sign in some of this that some of the people you're talking about stepping up, some of those organizations that maybe even a year ago, if something similar had happened, we wouldn't expect them to, you know, that there is at least small signs of progress here, Julian, but certainly not enough. For sure. But uh, I will also provide an optimist view and say that there are people who care about this stuff uh, at a grassroots level at the very least or, or community organizations. I think of people like or entities like the Black Girl Hockey Club. Uh, with the work being done by Renee Hess, I, I think of journalists and, and other media people who are unafraid of of calling out the BS when they see it, like Shereen Ahmed. Uh, there are people who, and obviously, there in light of those incidents, there were people, uh, there were a lot of people who were tweeting in support of of Boko and and and, and Jordan. And I don't want to take the light away from them too, because it, it's not as if. It's not as if nobody cares. I think it's just there they should be. They discussed it on Hockey Night Canada too, like in real time. Absolutely, they, they picked up the story pretty quickly. And, Absolutely, and they, 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 you know, they didn't just look past it that night. I mean, then you know, and, and sometimes in real time, live TV, you can miss stuff. But they, they were. I thought they did a nice job with it. 
They absolutely did. Uh, David Amber and Elliot Friedman were were talking about both incidents uh, on Hockey Night in Canada. And I think both of them did a great job. Yeah, this is something that a lot of people have noticed and a lot of people have taken the time to, to single out and talk about. And I'll say this, like, yeah, that's that's good. What we're talking about on this podcast right now. I'm sure when you listen to the Steve Dangle podcast later, uh, I know they have an announcement later com- coming, but they're probably going to dedicate some time to talking about this too, where we we have the platforms that we have and it's important that we talk about this sort of thing. Would this have been a thing 20, 30 years ago? Who knows? I don't know. But the fact that we're doing that work is, is encouraging. I, I guess it's just, I want to be at a point with racism where there's zero tolerance and this is something we don't have to talk about like at all. And maybe the idea that it could be absolutely zero some in some people's eyes could be an impossible thing, but I want that because I love the game of hockey and I don't like the fact that things like racism stand in the way of it being great. So, yeah, uh, this is a story that uh, I understand with the ECHL at the very least it's developing. Uh, if any other developments come, we'll, we'll, we'll obviously talk about it here on the CJ show. Uh, but it's just a very disappointing, very disappointing uh, that these two incidents happened. I'm not happy about it. I know CJ, you're not happy about it. Uh, it's it's very tough to do. And I also understand that because of the fact that we led the show with this, a bit of a tough segue to go talking about other hockey stories. But well, that's what happens. Said enough is enough on his on his tweet. I like that. He enough did. That's enough is enough. And I think that's how we should we should view it. Okay, hard transition. We'll go from uh, the racist incidents that happened in the HL, the ECHL. I want to go to the Edmonton Oilers first. Uh, they won a game over the weekend against the uh, Calgary Flames. They sl- they snap a long, lengthy losing streak. Dave Tippett finally has a win for the first time in what feels like forever behind the bench. Uh, Leon Dreisaitl goes off against the Flames. He gets that. Uh, I think he got two goals, including that second one. That uh, was essentially a buzzer beater, just getting into the empty net like with like 0.1 second left on the clock. Praises Miko Koskinen for his play after the game. CJ, have hard times finally come to an end in Edmonton? Well, it's a start, right? I mean, I feel like we've discussed them on pretty much every pod. It feels like going back a month. and They've given us content. Yeah, well, I mean, between the, the, the sparring with the reporters, Dave Tibbetts' job future, what Dave said about the goaltending, you know, a few weeks ago, there's been a lot there. Uh, you know, I, I think praise where it's due, right? Credit where it's due. We've, we've kicked the goaltending pretty hard. Koskinen had a great game. No, that, that's sort of the ironic part is Edmonton probably didn't deserve to win the game, but but they got a great goaltending performance, allowed them to do it. Um, I don't know if you saw Daryl Sutter had kind of a dry quote. He's like, I don't know why you're all talking about their goaltending. <laughs> that guy was great. Like it was pretty funny. And, and, and if you, if you find Daryl Sutter funny, like low key funny, which I do, uh, it, it was kind of a nod to everything that's been going on there, but yeah, they, they're still going to get a goaltender. I'm convinced of it. Um, but getting a win probably eases some of the tension. Like I talked to a lot of people around that team in the last week or two, and basically everyone described the same situation that it's like as bad as they ever seen it in terms of just the atmosphere, obviously physically in the building, you know, when you have a reporter incident, like Jim Matheson, Leon Dreisaitl, like everyone is going to work like a little bit on edge. Um, but even just the, the feeling in the fan base, I'm sure local radio and, and the podcasts that are done around that, like just apparently it was really tense. And so a win will help. 
I don't think we're done talking about the Oilers. I don't think that they're fully in the clear, of course. But, and I, I've tried to be fair with this in my analysis of them. There's a lot of games along that stretch where they were right in the game and with five minutes left and didn't get the one goal needed to win it. So it's not like they aren't they aren't losing every game six to nothing as they did to Florida in a game last week. So, um, you know, I, I do think that they're going to be in the playoff chase this year. I just think absent some kind of miracle here, it's hard to imagine them truly being the sort of contender status that, you know, I know we did that contender pretender show and I angered some people by saying that they weren't a contender, but you know, I, I need to be proven otherwise. I just, I don't see it. Maybe there's some goaltending acquisition, you know, that's happened. I mean, Jordan Binnington came out of nowhere. I know it wasn't an acquisition by the blues, but he started the year in the ECHL and by the end of the year, he was couldn't be beaten. They won a Stanley cup. I mean, maybe there's, there's some kind of great sporting story to be written here, but um, you know, I think that there's still a lot of heat on, on the, the front office in particular in that organization to, to make some moves to, to get them out of this funk. CJ, uh, that Oilers win over the Flames was their fifth win since our episode of Contenders versus Pretenders. That's their fifth win since How that many episode. Losses, you know? Uh, off top of my head, I think uh, like 11? Okay. 11 regular regulation losses and two uh, OT losses. I wrote a whole tweet about how bad they were from that episode to basically the present day, the Canadians at the time I wrote that tweet had like one fewer win in that stretch of time than the Oilers did. Like that's how bad things got in Edmonton. Like you, I gotta say you, you may have been right. <laughs> Call well, it to a pretender. You just, the blue line isn't deep enough. There's no third line essentially providing secondary scoring. And obviously when you have dry saddle McDavid, you can get by for huge stretches of the time with them doing most of the offensive work. And then the goaltending has not been strong. I don't know where they're at. They were bottom five team last I looked in terms of team save percentage. So it just wasn't a, the right mix to me. Even like you can, you can have two guys wearing capes, man, flying around the ice, giving us highlight real goals the way McDavid has this year, right at the top of the scoring list, the points list. But you I mean winning a game, winning Stanley Cup winning playoff rounds requires a lot more elements than that. And I just didn't see enough of the elements in their team. And I still don't. Um, and, and I think it's too much work to expect it to be addressed at one deadline. You know, I think it, some of what we're talking about needs to be summer overhauling. Like it, it has to, if we could go back in time and not have them start the season with the two goaltenders being Mike Smith's and Miko Koskinen again, you know, the odds were better. They were going to have more success. Right. And, and they, they did actually make a lot of moves, spent a lot of money on free agents, you know, bringing in Cody CC the trade for Duncan Keith, uh, the extension to Tyson Barry, but I just didn't see the right mix of players there. And so that's how I came to that conclusion. And you look at story's not written. Maybe they rip off 10 straight wins and I look like an idiot. So like, that's when we're, when we're observing sports in real time, that's the problem. Sometimes, you know, you go with what you see and what you feel and believe what you hear, but we can, we can still be surprised. Just to clarify here, the Oilers since that episode uh, of Contenders versus Pretenders, 5-11-2, and, and that includes the win over the Flames on the weekend. And speaking of a winning streak, uh, these are the next four games for the Oilers. The Vancouver Canucks, who we'll get to because uh, they have some goaltending issues. Uh, the Nashville Predators, the Montreal Canadiens, and the Ottawa Senators. That's they could get some wins against those. Maybe I'm not sure how it'll go against Nashville, but Canucks, Canadian senators, three winnable games out of a possible four upcoming for the Edmonton Oilers. Like even if it's not a winning streak, like that's, that's just good for their morale. 
they need a stretch like that. They, they need to sort of get four wins in a five game segment or something like that to feel better about themselves. Like Saturday definitely helps. There's no doubt. It's just given how toxic or really, you know, that, that well was pretty poisoned by the time they were, they were drinking on Saturday night. So, um, but I, but to truly have some faith in what they're doing and, and look, we haven't talked about it for a while, but I still believe there's a chance Evander Kane ends up there. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that'll be some kind of shot in the arm for the organization. I mean, and for Connor McDavid specifically, give them some better roster balance. I mean, you know, it's still, it, it's just hard to look at that team this deep. It's hard to sort of separate. I mean, we're evaluating this, this month, this season, but it's hard to think that it's like year seven of Connor McDavid and they're still have so many holes in, in their lineup you know, in places where 97 and 29 aren't, aren't penned on the board. Before I get to the Canucks, actually, uh, I want to bring up the Leafs because that is your job to talk about the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, the work that you can see in the Toronto Star, but obviously, of course, you do work for North Star Bets. Uh, of course, got to shout out North Star Bets. Uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs, they went over the weekend as well. They went 3-1 over the New York Islanders. It was 3-1, and they didn't blow a lead. They held on. Uh, and it actually comes after uh, a loss we remember from earlier in the week against the New York Rangers with a blue a lead. And Sheldon Keefe called out his players, uh, basically feeling they were soft and purposeless against the New York Rangers. Uh, what did you think of that comment from Sheldon Keefe? And do you think uh, Chief Keefe got the desired effect from his comment uh, in the way that the Leafs played on Saturday? Yeah, I think there's a couple things here. Like Sheldon Keefe post game, he can be very direct and even just like a touch emotional. Like like he can, you know, it's not to say he doesn't mean what he says there because I do believe he meant that. But the problem is, you know, in any Canadian market where there's a lot of attention on the team, like everyone just clips out soft in particular yeah. and, and then extrapolates that to mean exactly as they want to say. They were soft when they blew a 3-1 lead to the Canadians in the playoffs. They were soft in Boston in 2018 or whatever. Like, you know, whereas the basically it gives everyone sort of license to run with how they want. I mean, and Sheldon Keefe, his defense, did clarify when he spoke to the media a day or two later, sort of what he meant by that, uh, sort of soft in their approach. Um, you know, but I also view it as like it's gone pretty well in Toronto. Like, I was just saying, we don't even talk about the Leafs on the podcast because there really hasn't been any calamity. Yeah, um, it's kind of weird. You know what I mean? Like they've won when he made that comment, they'd won 22 of 30 games going back to October. So he hasn't had many chances to use the stick against him, if you know what I mean. Like even in, in practice or what have you, there hasn't, you know, when you're a coach, I think you almost get nervous sometimes that your players do get soft when things are coming easy, when, when it's rolling, that they're, that maybe bad habits are creeping in or this or that. And because they'd blown a series of leads going back to the game in Colorado, Vegas, St. Louis, you know, some of those games they, they pulled out a win, but, but they blew leads in those games. And I need to see it again after building a three nothing lead against the Rangers last Wednesday. I think he saw it as an opportunity to, you know, try to get everyone's attention. And and he got tons of attention. I'm sure he loved the response. I mean, that was a pretty thorough win against the Islanders on Saturday. And, you know, the Leafs are in an interesting spot, as I mentioned, just because, you know, they're kind of cruising around the top of the league, fifth in points percentage in the NHL. They're in this murderer's row division. Like right now they're fifth overall in the league and they're third in the division. So because of the divisional playoff format, they would be opening right now if the playoffs started in Tampa on the road in round one. And so I think that there's going to be a real push internally to try to win the division, just to have the best possible odds in your favor. If you face a game seven to know it'll be on home ice, all those types of things. 
Um, but, you know, I think it'll be a, a louder second half around the Leafs, I guess, than the first, because other than the first two weeks of the season when they really stumbled and everyone was going crazy here, it's, it's been pretty quiet around this team. Everything's sort of coming easy. I hate to say that. I'm sure they're, they're working hard, but it, it looks like it's coming too easy for them at times. And I think that's probably why when, when things were sliding a bit, they, that Chell and Keefe delivered that punch, I guess, sent his message. It is interesting that we haven't, uh, talked I mean I don't know I mean I think we've talked about the Leafs like kind of here and there but there's just been so much with the Edmonton Oilers uh, we talked about the Canadians and their GM search uh and obviously other things have just kind of been sprinkled in here and there and like after the Leafs it kind of looked like they were on shaky ground to start and then they kind of went on that run partway through the year and even when they were going through those blown leads I don't think we hammered on them enough it is interesting that the Leafs are going through what they're going through and I don't know I don't I find like I expected a situation where the Leafs would essentially maybe go on a run where things would just not go well and maybe a panic move would happen but none of that has happened yet and I think the Leafs are just saying like no this is the core we have in place we're just going to stay by them and just in the hopes of running it back finally hopefully we finally achieve some success but yeah, I, I, I can explain that's why. why we haven't talked about him. It's because we all know deep down that the playoffs will be measuring how this season yep. is viewed. I mean, this is the fifth season, essentially, where the Leafs have been a top five NHL team. Like, if you look over the last five years in the regular season, they've been right near the top of the league, basically consistently. Um, they, they did have one little swoon before Mike Babcock was fired a couple of years ago. But even after Sheldon Keefe took over, they won like 15 to 20 games. And so we've seen this before. Austin Matthews, we've seen him score a boatload of goals, which he's done this season. You know, William Nylander, John Tavares, all having great offensive seasons. They've had some nice stories, like Michael Bunting's produced really well on, on a cheap contract playing on the top line. Like, there's really the plus, you know, Morgan Riley's having a great year. Honestly, since he signed his contract, he's been awesome. Jack Campbell's been one of the stories of the league. I know he's struggled a bit more recently, but becoming an all-star. So the point is, is everyone's heard all the good stories about the Leafs. And, I, and it's almost a little unfair. Like, when you look at the – and I'm not saying this just conspires against the Leafs. It's unfair to Boston and Tampa and Florida too, that you basically have four of the top 10 teams in the league that all have to go through each other just by the way this format works. Like in, in the old days, if there was just the top eight in the Eastern conference, I think the path would be a little bit clearer, easier, however you want to look at it, but, but the Leafs will be judged by that first round series. And it's going to be against Tampa or Boston or Florida in all likelihood, unless they win the division and get a crossover or something. But more than likely, they're going to be playing one of those three teams, and they're all really good teams, and they're all teams that want to win a Stanley Cup and could win a Stanley Cup if things go their way. And I, th- I think that's why we're not talking about them, honestly. I think it's just like wake us up when we get to the trade deadline, see what you do there. We'll analyze that. And then wake us up when you get to the playoffs and see how you handle round one. Uh, by the way, just because CJ's saying what he's saying about the Leafs, uh, Leafs fans who watch this podcast, please continue to watch this podcast because – uh, we will find ways to talk about the Leafs before the playoffs begin. Just because this regular season doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things does not mean we won't talk about the Toronto Maple Leafs. But uh, also to everyone else who kind of looks at us and thinks like, stop talking so much about the Leafs. We'll, we'll find a way to talk about your team too. Like if you're the Vancouver Canucks and you find we yourself hammered in the position the Canucks, where you- We hammered the Canadians. We hammered the too. I mean, like we've, we've gone deep on all those teams. We've, we've ignored Ottawa yeah. and Winnipeg, not on purpose, yeah. but... We no. haven't given them as much love, but I mean, there's, there's been enough fires around Canada that we've been tending to those. Yeah. At the very least here. Yeah. Uh, and again, with the Canucks, uh, they're down to their fifth goalie because of 
different circumstances. They had, they started Michael DiPietro against the St. Louis Blues on Sunday night, and a U-Sports goalie, Ryland Toth, was his backup. Uh, Thatcher Demko out because of COVID. A border issue with Yaroslav Halak made him unavailable. Spencer Martin was supposed to be the third goalie. He was unavailable. Artur Silovs, who plays, uh, who plays in Abbotsford, the AHL goalie, uh, unavailable as well. And they were down to Michael DiPietro. A fifth stringer. Uh, I don't think I've seen anything like this. But then again, you know what? Because of the COVID, maybe I have. I don't know. That's actually a bit of a lie because the Canadians were basically at a point where they had like Michael McNeven as a backup. Like this is this is a bit ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, that's a hard game to win against St. Louis. St. Louis obviously being a top team in the league too. Uh, you know, the Vancouver actually played pretty well. I think they did what they could in front of their fifth string goaltender, young, young player in DiPietro, still establishing himself as a pro. Um but yeah, like talk about being befallen by bad luck. Maybe we're like sensitive. Sorry, we've, we've maybe we've grown kind of just used to e-bugs because there has been a lot of e-bug-like situations this year, you know, particularly with COVID protocol. Um, but I'm always fascinated when you got a youth sports goalie on the bench. You know, we saw Alex Bishop with the Leafs early in the season backed up a game with Jack Campbell. You know, where those guys are one shot or one injury, one collision away from coming into the game. Uh, pretty interesting. My buddy Stephen Wino, shout out Stephen Wino, is working on a book on e-bugs so i know he's been oh wow he's been uh it, it was already in the works you know the david air story the scott foster story all that was already in the works before this season but this season's put steven into overdrive um and yeah so i, I no deep thoughts on the canucks I, I still think they're they're playing pretty well under bruce boudreau and, and they handle themselves well in that situation but hopefully they get some health and guys that are protocol so that you know they can start the third stringer instead of the fifth stringer in the next game I'll give you two more quick topics before we get to ask CJ. Uh, Jacob Chitron, it seems as if the trade interest in him has uh, shot up. Uh, teams like the Los Angeles Kings, uh, the Boston Bruins, the Florida Panthers, uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets, the New York Rangers have expressed some interest in the Arizona Coyotes defenseman. Uh, what's your insight, your look on that? And uh, yeah, tell us what you what you know. Well, it's an interesting situation, right? Because this is a- a guy that's got three more years on his contract at 4.6 million, uh, which is pretty reasonable, you know, cap hit for, for the value he brings. And so it's, it doesn't necessarily have to be a deadline deal trade, right? I mean, it could happen soon. In theory, it could go into the summer. I mean, there's not really anything forcing Arizona to trade him other than the fact that they're, they're open to these conversations. There is interest, but I think there's a bit of a dance going on. And, you know, I know it's, it's been said elsewhere that, you know, could be close. You know, I, I don't get the sense it's close. Well, that problem with saying that is that could, ch- you know, change with one phone call today made to Bill Armstrong, the Coyotes GM. But, you know, my sense around the situation is there's certainly interest, you know, which has been reported on. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know that, that you're seeing that trade happen right now because, look, for the Coyotes to move him, it's got to be a significant package of assets to make that make sense. And, and um you know, the fact that you have all these teams sniffing around is notable. I think Boston's there. I can't remember mentioning that in the yeah, Rangers. Boston, yeah. yeah. I've heard Columbus is kicking tires, which doesn't totally make sense to me just because they're kind of in their own little rebuild, but they're probably looking at him like he's 23. Like he could play for us for 10 years if we acquire him now. And guys like that aren't always made available in the trade market. So you know, it, it definitely bears watching, you know, the Klingberg situation in Dallas to me has a little more urgency to it just because, you know, I think that 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 relationship is strained, as as we've mentioned, and you know I do think the stars would would prefer to move them sooner than later if they could. Um, but you know it's 
I think defensemen are going to be the order of the day leading up to this, this trade deadline. I mean, there's a lot of players on expiring contracts, you know, like a Klingberg, Mark Giordano. Uh, you have two defensemen in, in Anaheim, Josh Manson and Hampus Lindholm. We'll see if the Ducks are sellers or if they're holding on to those guys come March 21st. You have Ben Sherratt in Montreal, who I know a lot of contenders have kept an eye on as, you know, an, an ad for, you know, with the idea of, of, of having a playoff run. And so, you know, I think that we'll see a lot of blue liners move between now and then the deadline. And it just seems to be the way it's, it's flipped this year, that, that there's more maybe high quality uh, players available at that position than the others. Uh, and the final quick hit here, uh, Hockey Canada announcing some, well, reports have swirled about some names being announced for Hockey Canada's men's hockey team at the Beijing Olympics. Uh, Eric Stahl, who we've talked about on the show before, Owen Power, Kent Johnson, Mark Barbario, David Dernay, among some of the names uh, I believe The Athletic has confirmed. Uh, what's your insight on some of those names? I think the official roster should come out on Tuesday. Maybe I have that date wrong. I think I'm right. No, Tuesday, they're, they're, they'll finalize the team. They, they've been at a training camp in Switzerland. Uh, I think it's going to, like, obviously I'd prefer the NHL be there just because I love the theater of all that. Um, but I think it, it'll be interesting to watch that team go. You know, I'm, I'm curious about Eric Stahl. You know, he's, he wants an NHL return. You know, I, I think they'll make him the captain. Um, and, you know, he was at the 2006 turn games on the taxi squad at the time. He didn't get to play. You know, he told me recently that, you know, he just was was there like watching, you know, Joe Thornton and Joe Sackick, I believe, was a captain of that team. He said like, you know, he's 20 year old kid, 21 year old kid at the time. Uh, and now he's going as sort of the gray beard. I like the bookends part of that story. You know, having Owen Power there, you know, Owen won a world championship with Canada uh, last last spring. He's got a chance now to potentially win an Olympic gold medal, be two thirds of the way to the triple gold club before he even plays his first NHL game. Um, would be pretty special, of course, if he's, if he's able to do that. And so, you know, I, I like going with some of the younger guys. Team Canada didn't have as many options as the U.S. because NCAA players are eligible because they haven't signed NHL contracts, whereas a lot of the players that even are playing in, in Canadian Junior Leagues uh, weren't, weren't eligible for, for Team Canada. So, um, you know, they're trying to find the right mix between veterans and, and players that have played in the NHL and then obviously young, young guys and you know, I'm curious to see the the full list. Shane Doan being the GM of that team too, someone who represented Canada a ton as as a player, and Claude Julien as his head coach as well. Really intriguing to see what the names will be for that. And with that, it is time for Ask CJ, the segment we do on Monday episodes where we take questions from people like you. Whether you follow both of us on Twitter, whether you read our stuff at our respective publications, whether you like to talk about things in the Discord, which, by the way, sdpn.ca is where you should go to be able to join the Discord. We're trying to get to about 10,000 people on the SDPN Discord. It is a bumping time. I've noticed a lot of the questions that have been sent in today uh, coming from some celebrities, or at least some hockey-related celebrities, including one from Rachel Rachel Dory, who, uh, speaking of the Vancouver Canucks, in the last few days just got a gig with them in, as an uh, as a data analyst. Uh, congratulate. Well, I say data analyst, but just analyst. But you get what I mean. Congratulations, Rachel, on the gig with the Vancouver Canucks. All the best to you uh, with the Vancouver Canucks. And she actually uh, sent in a question for the podcast. Any recommendations for food or activities for someone moving to Vancouver? (laughs) Well, that's going to be relevant to Rachel. I guess when she finishes her schooling here, she'll be, she'll be moving there to to work full time. Well, I mean, I, I love the obvious activity there, which is 
you know, being on the seawall. You know, my, my method of choice is, is usually a, a run when I'm in Vancouver. You know, I've even run up around Stanley Park and all the way back downtown. It's like 15K or something. Um, like that, some of the best experiences are the ones you get for free, right? I mean, that, like, it's just beautiful. Uh, but I'd recommend if you coffee and a walk out there or bike ride, if you rollerblade, what have you, it's, it's just a nice, nice way to experience the city and be, it's just very peaceful, honestly, beautiful, beautiful spot. Um, I'm trying to think of a good restaurant. There's one in the, uh, funny, this part of my brain, I haven't been traveling as much. I've been to spend a lot of time in Vancouver over the years, but, um, there was a restaurant in the, the, near the Douglas hotel, which is, is not far from, um, the arena that I'd recommend you go, Rachel, but I'll, I'll send you a personal note on that when I think of it, you know, great city. And I, and I do think congratulations, of course, to Rachel, the, the staffing graph podcast, I presume is no more. Uh, with, with, no, with the staffing graph podcast, I think will still be, they just, they're just going to have a new co-host. I wonder who that's going to be. That's the podcast, obviously that uh, Rachel had with uh, Mike Stevens. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Rachel's not going to be part of the podcast anymore. Who knows? Uh, what will happen with that? It's a shame too. They just joined the hockey news uh, as a podcast, so it's a, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. But again, congratulations! Hired to by the Canucks, honestly, That's Rachel's uh, one of the great smart people in this space. You know, I know she worked in New Jersey, got experience there. Um, she's done a lot of things in the sport, and and I think, I think she'll be a valuable member of that front office. Absolutely. Congrats again to Rachel. This one is from Ryan Rashog from uh, TSN, a fellow colleague. What's the most angry you've ever made an athlete? And was it your fault? Uh, Joe Thornton is my answer. This is Ryan speaking. Joe Thornton is my answer. And yes, it really, really was. I would think maybe Phil Kessel. Um, It's not the famous clip where I'm in the middle and Phil's actually going at it with Dave Festchuk, who's now my colleague at the Toronto Star. I was just caught in the middle. That that was friendly fire. That I, There was nothing I said <laughs> that, that particular day. <laughs> a few times Phil and I had some exchanges. I mean, he he was a challenging guy. Um, I was stubborn too. Like he he would just prefer the media to never talk to him. Like he that was his style is he would be sort of difficult or whatever. And, he, and I think his hope was you just leave him alone because he wouldn't be that useful. And I was younger then and more kind of, wasn't going to let it go down that way. And, you know, we, we once, we once had an exchange in a hallway. Um, but I mean, no hard feelings, certainly. I, as I explained during the Jim Matson episode, like, I, I think it is part of the job. Sometimes there's a lot of pressure on the athletes, of course, and there can be a pressure too on the journalist end of things, depending on what the day is and where you're at in your career, trying to get a story, trying to chase something down. Um, you know, it's it's funny that it's Joe Thornton for Ryan Rashog. I mean, Joe's one of the easiest guys to deal with in the league in a lot of ways. Um, and I'm sure they smoothed it over afterwards. But uh, Phil Phil jumps to mind. And, you know, as I, I mentioned too, Julian, like I find the confrontation level has gone down with the newer generation of players um, a little bit. And so the world's shifting and evolving. And so maybe we'll have a little bit less confrontation in the future. I hope so too. Uh, from your for, from your former colleague at Sportsnet, Carly Agro, uh, mm-hmm. if the Buffalo Bills were an NHL team, which one would they be and why? This was sent before the Bills lost to Kansas City in the AFC divisional round on Sunday. Tough way to lose. They don't even get to touch the ball in overtime. That was a hell of a game. I mean, their defense had to get a stop with 13 seconds left and a three point lead. I mean, that's 
that that will haunt them. And I'm honestly not like I was spiritually rooting for the Bills. I mean, they're not my team, but I know enough people growing up here around Toronto that like them, you know, and they have a great team. I, I was hoping they would get to the Super Bowl, but um, you know, I actually answered Carly's question in the paper, and so I got to stick with it. But I, I had trouble with this one. Like, it's it's a great question. It makes you think. And I ended up going with Carolina, and mm. and here's and here's how I drew that parallel. Okay. I think that Carolina has sort of a sneaky. First of all, like Buffalo, the Bills. I think both of those teams are maybe overlooked by the national media a little bit. Like they they kind of exist in their own little orbit, but they don't get the attention they might deserve. I think they both have like sneaky good fan bases. You know, you can have a great hockey tailgate in Raleigh, just as you can I, have I a great tailgate in Buffalo. You and I think that there are two teams that are kind of right there, potentially great waiting to break through as championship teams. And so that was that was why I went. That, that was that was sort of my logic with the the parallels. I was thinking of Florida first. Um, but, but Raleigh has more of the tailgate NFL style and, and kind of just this unique fan base. I think Buffalo's unique fan base. Obviously they jump through the tables and all that stuff, um, <laughs> and, and they're tailgating, but I, I thought that was the, for me, that was the best parallel, but it was, it was a difficult question because I figured you, you have to have a, a team on the rise. It has to not be in like a, a big market or like an obvious market. And so I thought Carolina fit best, Carly. This next one on Twitter comes from Kevin Pope. Uh, my question is about expansion teams. Adam Wilde said on a recent podcast that he thought London, England would get an NHL team before Quebec City. Do you think there will ever be a time where the league expands across the Atlantic? I do. I do. And I, I just can't tell you when. But it makes too much sense. Um just because so many players are of Swedish heritage, Finnish heritage, you know, Swiss, German, there's, there's places in Europe that love hockey. I think what's, what's held it back quite honestly is the European teams that, that play in leagues there, they can't charge anything like the ticket prices that the NHL charges. And so, you know, and there's only so many stadiums that, that hold even 15,000 people, let alone 18 or 20,000, which you see in NHL cities but i still think in time that that is an evolution that will happen but i'm certainly not thinking it's going to happen next year i mean one of these teams is going to take the plunge like the nfl it feels like it's sitting right there for them with with only playing one game a week that the travel situation is minimized in my opinion obviously they play multiple games there a year now um you know i actually lived in london england for a year there's there's a great sport culture in that city and obviously people from all over the world live there like it was the coolest place I, i've ever like it feels like the whole world is in one place and so there's there's interest in these north american sports even there and so i it it's probably 10 15 20 years i don't know it's it's well into the future but i think you'll see a european division and european expansion i mean that, that that'll be what's interesting is it probably won't be one team right to make it work anyway logistically you're gonna have to introduce a number of teams at one time. Maybe some of these other leagues will like blend with the NHL. I mean, who knows? I, I think the sky is the limit in a sense, or like as far as our imagination can take us is what could happen. Um, but I just think with so many players being of European heritage that we're going to see more and more presence in Europe in, in the future. A follow-up to your time in London uh, during your year there. Uh, how often did it rain? Cause it rains a lot over there. And if you could put it at a percentage. 
It was a lot. It, the worst actually was it was just damp. Like even when it doesn't rain, like you just feel cold. Even when this, the temperature might say two degrees, which, you know, living in Toronto right now, it's minus 11 today Celsius. But like it felt colder there. It was like in your bones all the time. I think it's why everyone drinks tea or, or why that's like, it's just like you feel like you need to constantly be warming your soul somehow. Um, I, I felt cold there all the time, but it, what a cool experience that was. It was just after I finished university and actually, you know, worked in journalism there as a news reporter at the Associated Press. And it was a great, great life experience, probably more than a work experience, just to, just being there. But yeah, it was, it wasn't, I didn't live there for the weather, put it that way. Uh, two more questions from you, both coming off of Discord. Uh, this person has a pretty interesting name, Wham876543. Okay. Uh, any word on whether teams are looking at Yunus Corpusalo as a deadline acquisition in net? What are the odds you think he gets dealt and who might be in on him? Well, certainly that's someone Edmonton's looked at. Uh, and, and it's not to say the Oilers have made him their number one target or anything, but they've definitely at least kicked tires there and examined him. You know, he's not having a great season, which which makes it difficult. But I, I do think he he could be moved by the deadline. I mean, there's really only a handful of goaltenders that are probably even vaguely in play for the deadline. We don't see a lot of goalies traded in season typically. Um, but, you know, I think Corpus Allo is at least a possibility for Edmonton. You know, I don't know of anyone else firsthand that that's shown interest in him. But, you know, I wouldn't surprise me if we saw him move before the, the 21st of March. And uh, from Red Shark Pack, with the Pacific Division being so weak and bunched up, do you see any of the teams other than Seattle being sellers this season? Yeah, Los Angeles looking okay. San Jose is looking okay. We Anaheim. already discussed what Edmonton's doing. Anaheim too. They're ahead of they're ahead of of where they're supposed to be this year. Yeah, I don't I don't see any sellers there. I mean, I think if Anaheim say falls off in the next six weeks then they still have two weeks to become sellers. You know, I think that they're a team because of where they're at in their cycle. Like this is kind of a bonus year, in my opinion. You know, I don't think anyone expected halfway through the season, they'd be right in the middle of the playoff mix. And really for most of the year have held down, you know, been inside the playoff line, um, you know, and so if they get to the point where they fall away from that and they're eight points out or 10 points out come early March, I could see them turning into sellers. But, but beyond that, I don't see a lot of selling to be done. I mean, the Kings have sold off a lot of what they were going to sell off in, in recent years. Um, it's not to say they won't make maybe a trade or two out, but, you know, they, they don't have the pieces. But, you know, Anaheim's got decisions because they got three fairly prominent UFAs, pending UFAs, players that I think could, could get them a decent size return if they're in the mood to sell them. And so that's probably the only team other than Seattle and the Pacific, I, I think, will do it. I mean, Edmonton, I don't care where they sit. They're not selling. I think yeah. Calgary will be buying, um, you know, and, and then the teams that, you know, at the, the top, I mean, Vegas is, I don't know if Vegas has any space at all. I don't, I'm still unclear how this whole cap maneuvering is going to go with Jack Eichel. They seem very calm about it. So like, I presume they have a plan. Um, but, you know, they, they uh, you know, maybe they trade out a player and bring in more dead money, you know, someone who's injured and then they're able to create cap room that way. I know they're a really smart analytical team in Vegas, but yeah, no, no sellers other than Anna, Anaheim's a question mark and, and Seattle will, will sell and that that's it for the Pacific. Jack Eichel. That's a name we have not heard from in a while. I, I assume we'll have an episode either in the coming weeks where we talk about his uh, debut with the golden nets. Cause he's already skating with teammates. So. I, yeah. They're trying to like, you know, I saw Pete DeBoer had a quote in, in recent days that the coach of the Golden Knights sort of saying he might be a month or two away. Like, 
Like you, you feel like they're trying to maybe tamper down expectations for when he'll play, which is understandable. Look, it was still a serious surgery and he's been on skates for a while, but you know, they have to see how he reacts to contact. I think they want to be careful. But the other thing you can't help but look at, Julian, is if you open up your schedule, I know this is really soon, but there's a game February 1st against Buffalo. Uh, that, 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 I'm not saying that Jack Eichel is going to play in that game, but I'm not not saying he's going to play in that game. Like, I know it's it seems incredibly soon. It might be too soon. Like, ultimately, it might not be possible. But I think Jack Eichel is aware of that game. Put it that way. And I think it's something maybe in his own mind he wouldn't mind being there for. It's, it's, a, it's a little on the close end. He was supposed to be three months minimum from a November 12th surgery. So, you know, that takes you to February 12th. It might not ultimately be possible, but you're right. In the next, in the coming weeks, for sure, we're going to see him play his first game for, for Vegas. It's it's still just a matter of, of when, you know, everyone's comfortable that, that it's the right thing to do. Can't wait for that. And that's going to do it for our Monday edition of the CJ Show. CJ, a pleasure as always to do these episodes with you on the Chris Johnston Show. And a pleasure uh, to just be able to do these shows personally, just anyway. Uh, also just thank you to everyone who listens and watches these episodes on YouTube or, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts as well. Thank you for your support of the SDPN as a whole, a lot of big things coming by the time you get this podcast, we might be a few hours away from an announcement or you may have heard from my, my understanding is we're going to have new teammates by the end of the day. I think so. I'm, I'm pretty excited about, uh, the prospect of having new teammates and, uh, those of who are fans of the SDPN, you should be too. Be sure to check out CJ's work in the Toronto Star. Be sure to check out my work in the Athletic as well. Uh, that's going to do it until Thursday. But we'll have uh, stick taps. Also, before I go, I should mention this for future stick taps. Got myself uh, some mini sticks. Uh, that's, I like uh, the goalie one. Yeah, the goalie one is really nice. So uh, I'll try to plug those a little bit more when we actually uh, do uh, stick taps on Thursday. For CJ, I'm Julian saying so long. The Chris Johnston Show. Inside the game, twice a week. Follow Chris on Twitter at ReporterChris. And follow Julian McKenzie at JK McKenzie.